Hello, I'm Scott Millis, senior pastor here at Living Word Family Church, and I'd like to welcome you to our podcast. We want to thank you for joining us today, and we hope that today's message encourages you and equips you in your walk with Christ. Here's today's message. Uh, we begin week two of the fast. How's it going? We're good? Having a good fast? Uh, I really do enjoy hearing from you. I, I enjoy hearing from you. If you've got something, if God speaks to you uh, through the message, through the service, and you don't feel like standing up in front of the church, shoot me an email, give me a call. I love hearing, you about this, hearing from you about this stuff. I especially love hearing from you about what God's teaching you during this fast. So uh, don't hesitate to share that stuff with me. I'm going to be leaning pretty heavily this morning on some things I said last year during the fast. And I will, I will start with this, uh, and I, I don't know where in the fast I spoke about this last year, but it doesn't matter. Uh, we're talking today about why we fast. We talked a little bit last week about what a fast is, and we'll continue to talk about that. But uh, I want to stress something to you. God didn't tell me, declare a church fast. God didn't proclaim this fast, Okay. Uh, it's, not, uh, it's not anything more than uh, 21 days that we as a church have enjoyed and found uh, useful to set aside at the beginning of the year. I, Scott Millis, pastor of Living Word Family Church, have proclaimed this fast, and I haven't even proclaimed it. It's not a requirement. It's not, a, it's not, not only is it not a requirement before God, you don't have to fast to be a member of Living Word Family Church. You're still part of this. You don't have to participate, uh, but... We've found it as a congregation over the years to be a good and useful and helpful thing, all right? Uh, So I stress that because it's not a matter of legalism. Oh, you're not fasting? Well, then you can't really be blessed. You can't really be a full-fledged participating member of this congregation. Remember, say it every year, say it several times every year, the idea of a fast is not to get God's eyes on us, but to get our eyes on God. Uh, and if that doesn't work, the fast really is useless. It doesn't gain us anything other than perhaps some physical benefits. Uh, and remember uh, that uh, God not only did not command us to fast these 21 days, the only time that he appears to have uh, ordered fasting is for the Day of Atonement. And there what it says is, afflict your soul. It doesn't spell it out, go without food. It's just always been understood that way. Probably the greatest and most complete account of what God thinks of fasting is found in Isaiah chapter 58. So you can turn there if you want, or if you would. Isaiah 58, beginning in verse 1. It says, Cry aloud, spare not, lift up your voice like a trumpet, tell my people their transgression and the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways as a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the ordinance of their God. They ask of me the ordinances of justice. They take delight in approaching God. Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen? Why have we afflicted our souls and you take no notice? Uh, And let's stop there for a second because that's exactly what we're talking about. When he says, there's a little bit of sarcasm in what went before there. He says, they're coming before me asking for my ordinances, asking for my word, uh, quote-unquote, delighting in my presence, and they're acting as if they were people who, had, uh, who were sinless, who were righteous. 
He's not giving them credit for being righteous people. He says they're coming before me as if they're sinless, as if they deserve to stand in my presence. And then they're like, we're doing all this stuff. We delight in your word, Lord. And now we're even fasting and you don't even notice. Why? And he's about to tell them. In fact, it goes on in the uh, second part of verse 3, in the day of your fast, you find pleasure and exploit all your laborers. Indeed, you fast for strife and debate and to strike with the fist of wickedness. You will not fast as you do this day to make your voice heard on high. In other words, what you're doing is not getting my attention. Is it a fast that I have chosen, a day for a man to afflict his soul? Is it to bow down his head like a bulrush and to spread out sackcloth and ashes? Is this not the fast that I have chosen? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the heavy burdens, to let the oppressed go free and that you break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and that you bring to your house the poor who are cast out? When you see the naked, that you cover him and not hide yourself from your own flesh. Then your light shall break forth like the morning. Your healing shall spring forth speedily, and your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call, and the Lord will answer. You shall cry, and he will say, Here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger, and the speaking of wickedness, if you extend your soul to the hungry and satisfy the afflicted soul, then your light shall dawn in the darkness, and your darkness shall be as the noonday. Now, notice what he's saying here. He didn't initiate the fast that he was addressing here in Isaiah. But he didn't say, don't fast. He said, you're doing it wrong. Your motives are wrong. You're going about this the wrong way. I would put it this way, if I were just to boil this down into a statement. First of all, a couple of statements. He's saying... Don't waste your time depriving yourself if you think that's going to cause me to overlook your sin. That's the first thing he addressed. He said, this doesn't make up for it. You afflicting your soul, going without food, weeping before me, the sackcloth and ashes, if it's not genuine repentance, if you're trying to get me to do something, if you're trying to take a step spiritually, and you're thinking that this is going to cover up the fact that you're not doing the things I've told you to do, it doesn't work. He's saying, uh, if, if there are hungry people around you, the best thing you could do with that food you're not eating is to give it to them. Share it with them. Let God speak to you during this time of affliction of the soul about how you're treating the people who work for you, and the poor and the destitute in your midst. If you're going to afflict your soul, and let's, let's put that in, in uh, even simpler terms. If you're going to go out of your way, if you're going to put yourself out, if you're going to make yourself uncomfortable, do something, if you're going to, here we go, inconvenience yourself. Don't just inconvenience yourself for the sake of inconveniencing yourself. It might be inconvenient to invite that person over for a meal. But it's better than you just skipping a meal and staying at home and patting yourself on the back for starving yourself if you're not feeding somebody else. He's not saying it's wrong to fast. 
He's saying, let's use this time to correct your priorities and figure out exactly what we're aiming for here. He is accusing them, uh, God is accusing Israel here in this passage of outright legalism in the worst sense. And these were people who lived under the law. And it's one thing to accuse people of legalism today when we're redeemed from the law, right? When the law has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. They lived under the law, and God's saying, you're a bunch of legalists. Don't go through the religious motions while you are ignoring the things that are near and dear to God's heart. We know what Jesus said about this. In Matthew chapter 23, he spends almost this whole chapter chastising the Pharisees, the religious leaders, for this great pretense of religion and piety while they miss the heart of God. In uh, verse 23, he says this, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. Super important. Just like God didn't say to the Israelites, don't fast, Jesus here isn't saying, don't do these specifically religious things. Don't stop tithing. Don't stop doing these others. But you need to do them in the right context. Brother Hagen uh, wrote quite a bit, uh, and I think it's in his book on prayer and fasting, but I know I, I, I heard him speak more than once about the fasted life. Anybody ever hear him talk about that? Uh, leading a fasted life. And I think he was on to something. And instead of swinging between periods of deprivation and excess, you simply enjoy your food and your drink in moderation. I don't know what I would call that. If trying to put it in hyper-spiritual terms, I would probably call it self-control which is a fruit of the Spirit, right? Part of the fruit of the Spirit. But this is, this is what it's about. We find ourselves, I think, often drawn to the, uh, well, I'll just speak for myself rather than try to project onto you. Uh, I can look back uh, in what doesn't seem too long ago when I was at a more appropriate weight and uh, I would find, I'd get on the scale, not very often, but if I felt like, eh, it feels like my clothes might be getting tighter, I'd get on the scale and say, eh, you know what, I could stand to lose 10 pounds. Just a few minor adjustments and start exercising. Go, I typically just started running again. Start playing a little tennis, bike rides, things like that. Get my weight under control in no time. Uh, and then if I find myself, you know, okay, maybe I'm 15 pounds overweight, uh, then well, it's like, let's take a few weeks here and really do a, a very serious diet. But here, it is, I mean, for decades, we're talking, uh, if I ever was on a diet, it was an event. And, and I don't mean like a production, hey, Scott's on a diet. I mean, it was an episode. I'm going to go on a diet for two weeks, a month, two months maybe, until we get back things under control. And then I can go back to eating like I want, living like I want. You know what I mean? And it worked. But you reach a certain age, and the changes you make with your eating habits and your exercise and everything else, they've got to be lifestyle changes rather than an event. 
Now, and I think, and again, I'm only speaking for me, it's easier to look at these things in terms of events. And that's what's appealing to me about a three-week fast, because I can do something hard for three weeks. Anybody can do it for three weeks. And it shouldn't be, by the way. And it's, it's something that, that I, I always got to keep at bay during these three weeks of fasting is, uh, you know, since I usually do choose something, I always have choose, uh, chosen something food-related, uh, that I don't make it about how much weight am I losing, how much better do I feel, how much better do my clothes fit, uh, uh, but rather focusing on the spiritual aspect. And one of the things we ought to do, it's, just, it just, it's a perfect time of year. We could do this fast at any time of year. The, the thing that's nice about the first of the year is we're kind of in the mode for making resolutions and submitting to certain changes anyway. Let God speak to you during these three weeks hey, look, here's what I want you to do. Here are some changes that you're learning that you can implement going forward from here. All right? Uh, and some of you, that's not a problem. It's really not. What I, what, yeah, what I used to do is, uh, for, for many, many years, I did uh, what was a, a, a more or less pretty strict Daniel fast, just mo almost all fruits and vegetables. Uh, what I have found uh, working much better for me the last couple years is to limit myself to one meal a day. Uh, because, it, because I can, I can spend some time, you know, coming up with creative ways to enjoy fruits and vegetables. But if I don't have to worry about making breakfast, making lunch, it just frees me to do more reading, to do more praying. For me, it's, like I said, for the last couple of years, that has worked better. And again, always using it as a reminder. We'll come back to this at the end. I'm getting very much ahead of myself. Well, not very much ahead of myself, because this is a short message, I think. But to, as a reminder, whenever I feel that hunger, which is often through the day, it's like, why am I hungry? Ah, I'm hungry because I'm supposed to be spending more time praying. It's reminding me what we're doing this for as a church. Anyway, the fasted life. Uh, Brother Hagen talked about that where he just simply, he learned to know this is what I need to eat. This is when I need to eat. I don't need to satisfy every craving. When I'm hungry, I don't need to eat until I'm over full. I just need to satisfy my hunger. Uh, anyway, it's, it's easy to get addicted. And it's not just, again, it's not just our food. It's about enjoying all sorts of things like movies, social media, sports. Uh, any of these things can turn into an addiction. Um, so it's... Uh, it's important that we don't make the things that we enjoy genuine priorities. And a fast is a good way to get our priorities straightened out. And physical hunger is maybe the best teacher. Because we have to eat. It's a physical necessity. But we have also trained ourselves uh, that every time we get a hint of hunger, we have to satisfy it. Don't you have to wait till our stomach growls? It's like, ah, feeling a, little, feeling a little peckish. I think I'll have a bag of chips, a candy bar, whatever. Even if it's something health, healthy, God forbid we should go two hours uh, feeling that way. You know, none of us are going to die uh, if we skip a meal now and then. And we remind ourselves, you know, think about the Israelites in the desert eating that manna. And it was, uh, apparently it, was, it could be prepared in a number of ways. They could do certain things with it. And it was pleasant tasting. But it was the same thing every day. It was what God sustained them with. And uh, I'm getting off track here. It just always, when I read the, the part where they're like, they finally, they go to Moses and they're complaining. 
nothing to eat but this manna. We want meat. Huh? Yes, yes. Oh, that we had the leeks and the onions that we enjoyed so much in those uh, glory days of living in slavery in Egypt. Remember, we had the fish and the onions and the garlic and the leeks. Now, nothing but this manna. And so, remember what God did? You want some, you want some meat? I'll give you meat. I'll feed you meat till it's coming out of your noses. And uh, sends all this quail in there. And I'm just thinking, I don't think, can't say it doctrinally for 100% sure, but if they had simply said, Lord, thank you that we've never had to experience a day of hunger. You have taken care of us every moment we've been out for every single day. Uh, be not angry with me, but would you graciously supply us with something else just for the variety? And, and God might simply have said, those flocks you brought with you, help yourself. I'll make sure that your flocks reproduce. You're never going to run out. Go ahead, slaughter some of these animals. Or maybe he simply goes, yes, I'm going to bless you with quail, with, with whatever else, and enjoy it. All you had to do was ask. But they could never ask anything without complaining. It's just so dramatic every time you read. It's not like we're thirsty. It's like, we're all going to die of thirst. Oh, that we had died in Egypt. Instead of come out here. You can see, oh, you get frustrated. I get mad. I want to strike down Israel when I read about them in the Old Testament. Anyway, we, we have trained ourselves uh, to immediately satisfy every urge, every craving. And many of us have trained ourselves to over-satisfy those urges and cravings. What fasting can teach us and should teach us is that our spirit gets hungry too. But you know what? We've trained ourselves to ignore those cravings. Extended fasting teaches us that those cravings, uh, if you've ever done a total fast, and I know many of you have, if you can, you'll fast for uh, over a week, uh, which most of us can do safely, you'll find that those hunger pains go away. Now, when you think about food, you might still desire food. You might think, hmm, I really would enjoy this. But the actual gnawing pain, I don't know. I've had it, uh, I've fasted long enough for that to go away. It's not, like, it's not like it gets worse and worse. You just simply get used to not eating. And they'll stay away for up to three weeks. And when those, that growling and those pains return, that's usually, physically speaking, a sign to where you need to stop fasting and you need to eat again. God's sort of built that into our systems. Uh, and I've never fasted so long that that happens. You know, it's just like, I feel like I could go another few days, but I'm not, I'm done. I've, 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 I've satisfied the purpose of this. But the spiritual application there is, if you have been born again, and if you've experienced anything like a personal revival, you know what it means to be spiritually hungry. Just nod your head if you know what I'm talking about. It's like, yeah, I want another sermon. I want to read some more. I want to go to this. I want to be around people who are hungry like me. 
I'm not saying you're always like this, but nod your head if, you know what I, if you've experienced that. And so we respond to that. We feed our spirits. We feed on the word. But if we ignore it for long enough, you lose that sense of hunger. You lose your appetite for spiritual things. In uh, Matthew chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, it says, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit, led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterward, he was hungry. Can you imagine? Now, when the tempter came to him, he said, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. In John chapter 4, verse 31, it says, In the meantime, his disciples urged him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat, of which you do not know. Therefore the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him anything to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Hmm. That's a good place to start, realizing that we are sustained, even physically, but certainly also spiritually, by the word of God. And Jesus, notice what he said in that second passage. My food, I'm going to live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Not just by bread, but then he says, my food is to do. He was actually, we talk about, well, we've got we've to feed on the word of God because if we're out there just working for the Lord, we're, we are draining ourselves of all this spiritual energy. That's not really how it works. We should be doing all this in the strength of God and certainly a part of doing his will and doing his work is to continue to read and study and hear, hear teachings and fellowship together. But it's just interesting that Jesus uh, wasn't talking about having to be recharged by anything other than doing the work of God. Because if you're doing the will of him who sent you, you're doing it in his power anyway. All right? Now, uh, we should pray, we should desire, we should experience that that hunger for his manifest presence and his wisdom and his guidance and his word uh, would grow. And it's something that we should learn how to cultivate and ultimately satisfy the way the Word tells us to. I've told you at least once this story. I probably told you this story last year. Um, I, I don't know. For all I know, I tell it every year. I didn't go back that far. But a co-worker of mine at Rama, uh, in fact, he was a, a, a classmate of mine at Rama. He was a co-worker with me at Canaanland. He had gone down to work there and... Uh, when I was at uh, homecoming one year, I ran into him and he said, hey, here's what I'm doing. Uh, you should come check it out. And six months later, they were calling saying, hey, this guy says he knows you and you'd be a good counselor down here. Do you want to come work? And I ended up working down there. But this guy uh, told the story. He had a great, uh, he had a great message that, that was called Killer Vacation. You guys remember this story? He called it Killer Vacation. And he told the story when he left. He was a hard worker. And really gifted mechanically. He did a lot of stuff, fixing the vehicles for the ministry, uh, fixing stuff. You know, he just, if he didn't know it, he would just, he would learn it. He would take it apart and learn how to fix it. Uh, and stuff like that was always happening. So he was a hard worker. And when it was time for him to take a trip, he wanted to 
vacation hard. Uh, so he took off, he took a trailer with a motorcycle, and he went back home, and he traveled up into Michigan and a few other places. He was gone a week and a half, and, uh, and he talked about how that he came back, and, and we can all relate a little bit to this, I think, depending on what your uh, taste is in vacations. But sometimes you do so much on vacation that when you get back, what do you say? I need a vacation to recover from my vacation. Uh, you know, if it's an adventure kind of thing, or if it's a long trip or something. But this guy uh, talked about when he came back, he felt depleted like that but he felt spiritually depleted. He had a hard time getting back into the groove, not because, oh, I'm back at work, but he felt like he had nothing to give the students. And he realized that what he had done in the busyness and enjoyment of his vacation was take a vacation from reading the Word, from spending time in praise and worship. He just stopped doing any of that stuff because he had associated doing that so closely with his job at the ministry that when he was on vacation, he stacked up his schedule so much that he didn't leave time for God. And when he got back, and you call it killer vacation because it's, he's like, it's, this was, it sort of killed me spiritually. He also, uh, I don't know if it, it was shortly after that, uh, and he didn't, I don't think he taught on this. He didn't share it with everybody, but he was sharing it with me. He, he went through a period of time where he got so busy, so many things were breaking down, the demands on his gifts and his talents and his energy were so great that he was always out in the shop fixing something, souping this up, uh, uh, figuring out how somebody else could fix it. Uh, and, and when he would come in to eat, he would eat like an animal. I mean, he would pile up as much food as they would let him have and just... And he was just constantly eating. And he realized he had let his... Uh, devotional life slipped completely away again. He, wasn't, he was excused from teaching classes because he had so many of these other things to do, so he wasn't spending time in the Word, wasn't spending time in prayer, wasn't spending time in worship, and his spiritual hunger, he found, he said, I realized what I was doing. I was trying to satisfy my spiritual hunger with physical food. And we'll do that. That's something that's very common in the natural. Sometimes uh, uh, I'm going to tell a couple, make a couple of military references here, but uh, one thing that, that many guys could tell you, many people could tell you, is out in the field especially when you don't get all the sleep you want to get. And so what, you, what do you do instead? You, you, you try to fix that. You try to satisfy your need for sleep with food or sometimes with uh, cigarettes or something like that, something that's not as good as food, but sometimes you get pretty creative. That's where I learned to like hot stuff. Uh, in the army, because he, he, back when I thought Tabasco was really, really hot, you know, if I had a bottle of Tabasco in my, in my rucksack, I would soak my, my dehydrated, dehydrated beef patty in that or something like that, or just drink straight from the bottle just to stay awake. Can't sleep, so something else. Well, I'm not studying the Word of God. I'm not satisfying that spiritual need, uh, but there's a hunger there. And if you're not analyzing it, you're not submitting that to God, I'll just eat more food. So, uh, learn to recognize what spiritual hunger is, and you satisfy it with spiritual food by feasting on the Word of God, the, the Word that comes out of His mouth. Read the Bible, all right? Sit under good teaching, but also do the will of God. There is nourishment in that as well. Um, I mentioned... Uh, 
I think in the, uh, I don't know if you, how many of you see the description of these messages when they, when they go out online, but there's, uh, when we enter, when we embark upon an a adventure like this, fasting together and asking why we do it, doing my best to cover that, but also warning you that uh, there's this idea that, uh, well, there's prayer and that's good. But if I'm fasting, that makes my prayers more powerful. Fasting is how I supercharge my prayers. That's really not how it works either. The whole idea, the, the advantage in fasting is simply to get your mind on praying. The problem is, generally speaking, and I, I, I want to paint with too broad a brush because I, this is a praying church, uh, but generally we don't pray enough. We don't spend enough time in prayer, and I don't think uh, enough of us make prayer enough of a priority that we actually schedule that time. And there's nothing wrong, I've said this a half a dozen times at least, there's nothing wrong with praying while you're doing other things. I, you know, that's pray without ceasing, right? I mean, we don't have to that doesn't mean we can't eat. It doesn't mean we can't work. It just means, you know, when something crosses your mind, pray about it. Pray, you can pray quickly. You can pray a five-second prayer. I pray dozens of those daily, and that's great. But if prayer is, as I believe it is, and I believe you believe it is, the most powerful weapon in our arsenal, we really ought to set aside time just to pray. And fasting reminds me to do that. Okay? Uh, another... Um, Useful thing about prayer, I believe, uh, is a couple things. I'll, I'll, I mentioned I was going to tell, a, make a military reference or comparison here. And I, and I spoke with the Rangers. The Rangers were going to go to winter camp this weekend, and, and they would have been driving through the absolute worst uh, of that storm on Friday. So instead, they stayed here, and I had the privilege of speaking to them. So I told them some Army stories from way back when, and made it very clear that some of the hardest stuff that I knew about the Army were not things that I did. I didn't share that with them some of the harder things that I did, but I did share what I knew about even harder things, like Ranger School. Has anybody in here been through Ranger School? Okay. It's, it's, it's a small unit uh, leaders course that the Army offers, and it is widely considered the most physically demanding course in the military. It's not the most specialized course, okay? Uh, you, you talk to guys who are uh, uh, Delta, even though they're not really called that, Navy SEALs certainly, even Army Special Forces. Uh, they have much, much more specialized training. Uh, they're much more expert in these special operations. But as far as just the grueling nature of the school itself, uh, Ranger School is famous for being a hard thing to do. And I may have shared this with you guys before. I know I shared it with the Rangers the other night. But I remember uh, General Barry McCaffrey, who some of you may be familiar with. He's still uh, on TV from time to time as a commentator on military uh, issues. He retired as a four-star general. And uh, he was also, he sort of uh, made, became famous as the most successful and aggressive ground commander of Desert Storm, uh, Schwarzkopf. Pretty much almost had to have him on a leash to hold him back because he was outrunning everybody else 
as commander of the 24th uh, Mechanized Infantry. Anyway, he was the post-deputy commander, I think, when I was at the infantry school for my officer training back in 87. And I heard him, I had the privilege of shaking his hand a couple times, and I heard him speak at least three times. And uh, he told the best stories. And when he talked about, he was, he was uh, talking about the, you know, the careers of these guys, and, and he said, he, you know, we were officers, and so that meant not everybody had been to basic training, but he wanted to know how many of you were prior service, or how many of you were enlisted uh, before you became an officer? You know, several of us raised our hands. He goes, so how, you've been to basic training. How many of you can testify that you were prepared for the worst? You knew basic training was going to be hard. You heard about these mean old drill sergeants and all the push-ups you had to do, and and we're like, yeah. He says, and you got there, and it was hard. And after a few days, you realized it's not that hard. We're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. He says, you West Pointers, how many of you heard all the horror stories about Hell Week and plebe year and how the demands? And so you went there, and you're like, yep, it was hard. It was challenging. But then you realized it wasn't that hard. He says, and then you came here. This is infantry school. You're going to be infantry leaders, and you knew it was going to be demanding because we're, we're trying to raise not just infantrymen, but people who can lead infantrymen. And so you came here, and you realize, yeah, there's some physical challenges, there's some mental challenges, but overall, it's not that hard. And we're all like, yeah, yeah, yeah. He says, uh, when you go to ranger school, you will never feel that way. You will never have one moment at ranger school where you think, this isn't as hard as I thought it was going to be. He goes, you're going to think I'm making this up, but it's not. This is the, the quote that I remember just seared into my memory. He says, this sounds ridiculous. It even sounds ridiculous to me when I share it with you, but there were times when I was in firefight in Vietnam, lying on my back in a depression, watching the tracer bullets whiz over my face and thinking to myself, it could be worse. I could be back at ranger school. <laughs> now, here's why I brought it up to the rangers, and here's why I bring it up to you. Ranger school, Navy SEALs, whatever. Why do we do hard things when we don't have to do hard things? The whole military is volunteer, let alone volunteering for things like rangers, Delta Force, SEALs, Special Forces, all these. Why do people do the hard things? Now, you like to think, well, the country needs men and women to do the hard things. And I love my country, so I'm going to do it. And praise God. But that's really not what drives these guys' trains. You know that, right? And mostly it's not for personal glory either. I want to go through all this so I can tell people what I did. That's not really it either. Why do we do the hard things when we don't have to? And it's different for everybody. But why as Christians do we do a hard thing like fasting when it's not required of us? We do the hard things when we don't have to so that we know we can do the hard things when we have to. It's called self-discipline. I'm going to put myself through this now so that when hard times come, I know I can handle it. I've been through this. I've been hungry. This is what Paul talked about. I've learned how to uh, abound. I've learned how to be abased. In all circumstances, I can praise God because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. He's not talking about, I want to be the captain of the football team and I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. If God puts that vision in your heart, by all means. But he's not talking about that. He's saying, whatever situation I'm in, I've learned to be content because I can do it through Christ who strengthens me. We're talking about these rangers 
uh, and, and Navy SEALs and, and whatnot, guys who do these accomplishments on nothing but natural skill, gifting, physical strength, and willpower, how much more should we who have the Spirit of God dwelling in us and His promise be able to accomplish and endure? He's, because we don't go through it alone. He was right there with us, right there in us, empowering us to do all the things He's called us to do. One more thing, and I'll wrap up with this, is when we submit ourselves to a fast, uh, a fast in, particularly, in particular, because, it, it, and again, whether it's food or something else you are depriving yourself of. The, I, the principle of relative deprivation is, is a helpful one, because relative deprivation is it, what it does is produce a genuine sense of appreciation. When you deprive yourself of something, you appreciate more that thing that you're deprived of. Uh, I can remember, since I'm in that frame of mind, uh, one of the more physically demanding exercises at my officer basic course was the land navigation course. I did some land nav uh, at basic. We did a lot of land nav with ROTC, but we really spent a lot of time, and we were out in the field, living out in the field while we did this, learning where you're learning how to read maps, learning how to get, get from point A to point B through some rough terrain. Uh, and, and generally, you've got a buddy that you're, that you're kind of doing this with. And I was, I was actually pretty good at land nav. I could read a map. I could, I could use a compass and a protractor and find these things uh, pretty well. My pace count was good. I knew where I was going, how long it should take me. Uh, but my, one of my good friends was struggling. And so we did, uh, while well, I was ready, you know, I, I had passed the daylight portion of the land nav course, and if you were already done with that, you could rest until the night land nav course. But I went through it again with another guy to help him just kind of uh, find these points. I couldn't go through it with him, but I went out and did a practice course with him so that he could go out and pass. And then the night land nav course rolls around, man, I'm already exhausted. And you're out there you know, you're not supposed to use a flashlight, but everybody does. Everybody kind of sneaks one out there just so you can kind of see where you're going. At least you can look at your map. And uh, anyway, by the time I get back in with, with my map filled out and the points I'd found, it's, it's probably 2 o'clock in the morning, and now you're waiting on the, everybody else to show up. And I, it's one of the... Everybody's had a moment where... Several moments in your life where you've been truly exhausted. This was certainly in my top five. I mean, I was... As, as the saying goes, dead on my feet, except, except for the dead part. I wasn't dead. I was just very, very weak, very, very tired. And since I'm done, all I got to do is wait. I just laid down. But we were packed up. We were ready to go. I didn't have a sleeping bag. I didn't have a pillow. We we're out there in the gravel. I laid down on that gravel and slept like a baby. And I think uh, it's somewhere in his, in his book, but I couldn't find the quote. Jonathan Netanyahu, older brother of Israel's current prime minister, said that something, I don't have the exact quote, but it says, only the infantry soldier can truly appreciate the glories of a bed, a mattress, a pillow, and a blanket. How wonderful this everyday convenience is uh, when, you, when you're used to sleeping on rocks out in, the, out in the weather. And you get idiots, you know, who go off to ranger school and, and, and live, uh, you know, a really hard life for 63 days, and then they come back and say something, patently ignorant, like, I can't even sleep in a bed anymore. They're too soft. Like, no, no, that's not the point. You know, when you go through the hard things, it makes you appreciate the good things you have in life, right? 
I, mean, I got back from Mexico, our first Mexico, my first Mexico trip with YWAM. Uh, coming back from my first experience, it, there's so many wonderful things I learned on that trip and with things we were able to do. But it was also my first exposure to genuine abject poverty. I had never seen with my own eyes what true poverty looked like uh, before I saw what we saw down there in, uh, in the outskirts of Monterey and Aguas Calientes. And when we came back, just getting across the border and going to a McDonald's, and uh, enjoying the, the prosperity of being an American, I remember making that statement to Bill Burtness. I said, man, after living there for a week and coming back, it almost makes me feel guilty for everything we have. And he said, I know. He says, everybody experiences that, but you have to understand God doesn't want your guilt. He just wants your gratitude. And depriving ourselves this, this relative deprivation, temporary voluntary deprivation, it ought to, among other things, increase our sense of godly gratitude, to be daily thankful for the abundance that we do enjoy. Amen? Praise the word, Tim. You can be making your way on up here. Everybody else, go ahead and stand up. I am wrapping this up. Remember, remember that uh, God has given us all things to enjoy. And Paul specifies that all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful, not all things are profitable. Fasting teaches us that while everything that is not opposed to a commandment of God's word is something that we can enjoy, our goal in life, our purpose in life, is not to grab all the gusto and enjoy everything that's available to us. It's to hear God's voice and be confident that everything we need in order to accomplish the mission he's given us, he has made abundantly available. Can we enjoy stuff along the way? Yes. Where, and I'm not going to get into this whole message right now, but when we talk about prosperity, where the prosperity message has gone wrong, and I'm not throwing that out. I believe the health and wealth gospel. Do I believe that God is for our health and for our wealth? You cannot read the Bible and come to any other conclusion. It's silly to say that's heresy. It's not heresy. It becomes heresy when you start thinking that God's main objective for you is to be healthy and wealthy. Those are means to an end. And if we are not spending our health and spending our wealth on what he has called us to do, then the health and wealth doctrine becomes health and wealth heresy. Okay, we have an abundance to do the things he's called us to do. You should be saying amen. But when we focus only on what I can get, God's made all this abundance, so that's, I'm going to dedicate my life to just getting as much and enjoying as much as I can get from God. For what purpose? It's a waste of time. Fasting teaches us that we can have an abundant outlook be thoroughly energized and satisfied while not just foregoing one thing here and one thing there, but by walking in victory over the strongest physical impulse there is, physical hunger. We find that, hey, that fruit of the Spirit, self-control, really makes a difference, just like love and joy and peace and patience and all the rest of it. It's important. The Spirit-led life 
is so much different, radically different from the best life this world offers. And fasting is one of, I wouldn't call it a shortcut, it's just a very useful tool in learning to be led by the Spirit. And what does that mean? I guess here's my, uh, my invitation to you. The Spirit of God, also called the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit, uh, is the one who seals us, who, who uh, make, lets us know that we are saved. What saves us? What causes us to be in, uh, in right fellowship, right standing with God? The blood of Jesus Christ. The only way we can even be in his presence, the only way we can approach God is to recognize I'm a sinner and I can't get there on my own. I'm not worthy of his presence. And Jesus took your sin, took your uh, unrighteousness, everything that disqualified you from God's presence, he took in his own body and suffered that, the judgment for that on the cross. And what he gives us in exchange is his righteousness. So people say, oh, you think you're righteous just because you're a Christian? Yeah, I do, but it's not my righteousness. I am absolutely made righteous in God's eyes, but it's Christ's righteousness. I have been clothed with Christ's righteousness. He makes that available, but it's only available because of the blood of the cross. If you have never acknowledged that no matter how good you are or how good you think you are, you need a Savior, you need somebody to pay that price, just acknowledge that today. Yeah, you're right. I've tried to be good. And if I'm real honest, I haven't even tried that hard to be good. But since I never thought I was that bad, I never thought I needed any help from God. You do. The best of us need the blood of Jesus Christ. We need it no less uh, uh, than the worst of us. Okay? We're like, well, you, only, you don't need that much blood because you're a pretty good person. None of us are, are, can, can bridge that gap, can, can come close to being, righteousness enough, being righteous enough for God. Only Christ can do that, uh, and he makes that freely available. It's simply a matter of confessing and believing. If you will confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And then we find out that once we're saved, we can understand the scriptures. We can be led by the Spirit. And God has a special gift for those of you who have been uh, born again. He says, I will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit himself, it's, it's a, we can call it the second blessing. Being a spirit-filled Christian, full gospel Christian, the fullness of the Christian life is only uh, available to those of, who have experienced what they experienced at the day of Pentecost. You had a room full of believers, born again, saved people who were then filled with the Holy Spirit. So we're going to sing a song here right after I pray. And when I get done praying, if you want to be saved... Give your life to Christ for the first time. Or if you want to be filled with the Spirit, come up here and let me pray with you. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for this fast. Thank you for this church. Thank you for everything you're teaching us, everything you're showing us as individuals, as families, as uh, a local body of believers here in St. Joseph, Illinois. We are excited for everything you have planned for us. Father, it's my prayer now that if there's anybody in the sound of my voice who does not know you as Father, who has not uh, availed themselves of the gift that you offer, the gift of eternal life through the blood of Christ, that you would convict them of their need and grant them the wisdom, the boldness, and the humility to come and receive it today. I pray, Lord, for any brother and sister in this room who has been saved but has not experienced the fullness of the Holy Spirit, that you would create a hunger and a desire, an appetite for more that can only be satisfied by that baptism of the Holy Spirit. 
and grant them the grace to come and receive that today as well. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you as you come. Let's go ahead and sing. Thanks again for listening. To hear more messages like this one, make sure to subscribe and check out our podcast channel for past episodes. And if you enjoyed today's message, consider sharing it with a friend. For more content and information about Living Word, check out our website at livingwordfamily.org. And remember to live the gospel and preach the gospel.